to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest today. I have Housecat from Bible Buddies. Welcome. Hello. Happy to, happy to be here. Happy we've done this little uh, Christian biblical exchange with you coming <laughs> on my podcast and now I'm on yours. You were gracious enough to have me as a guest and I had a really good time. So thanks again for that. Yeah, no problem. You were, you were a fantastic guest. You were one of my first, I think. We did Leviticus or Deuteronomy. So I think we did right. Deuteronomy, which is like, a, it was a very... Um, daunting a uh, little bit of homework for that up yeah well, i mean it's it's a lot it's a lot of rules uh it's a lot of uh, stuff regarding the the covenant and i couldn't help but think about how it kind of ties into like the the hebrew section that we're reading now there is a lot that relates back to um old testament rules but before we get into that why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and about how or if faith plays a part in your life Okay. Uh, so uh, my name is Housecat. I run the uh, podcast Bible Buddies, which is, so I've never uh, read the Bible. I'm not a religious person. Uh, I've been not, you know, atheist. I've been, so agnostic, I hear a lot, has uh, two definitions. There's like the one that everyone uses, which is, uh, oh, I just don't know if there's a God. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Whereas the approach that I've always taken is I, I don't care and I don't think he does as well or, you know, they in the sky, uh, which also falls under agnosticism, according to Wikipedia, is just not like in what way does it really um, matter? You know, if it's like if it's uh, a, a huge problem that I think or, or God cares about my um, actions or the life that I'm leading, like he will send uh, he will make it known, right? And he would theoretically know that, you know, what my stance on it is. So it's not going to have to be like, oh, I just found a $20 bill on the ground. God's real as opposed to, hold on, I have to let, let the cat out one second. Oh, that was a cute little sound in the background there. It's nice. Uh, but yeah, agnostic's never really been a big thing. And uh, actually still right now, like I consider Bible Buddies, it's a Bible podcast, not necessarily like a, a faith-based Christian podcast. But I mean, that said, that... Seems to be changing every with every uh, book that I read, every chapter I, I uh, go further in. Uh, I'm I'm starting to see. I'm starting to believe a little bit more. But uh, so that's uh, the background with the pod. As far as my I guess religious background and faith, uh, I come from a uh, ethnically Jewish family, and I guess religiously also, but in the loosest, most liberal, secular sense, like the most. Um, What's the term? There's like Orthodox and then there's Reform, Reform kind of school Judaism. Okay. Uh, so I guess it's like we're, we're, we fall, like my entire Jewish family falls into like the money Jew category. Like, I don't know if you've heard of this distinction between the two. Yeah, I think I have. But, but why don't you explain that a little bit just so people okay. have a little context. Yeah, you've got, you've got the, the book Jews and the money Jews. Uh, the book Jews are the ones who, uh, you know, they have the their, their chalits and their hats and their, their kippahs and they um, keep the Sabbath uh, and they uh, uh, basically they're the ones who actually follow the rules and are religious. And typically they uh, don't have a lot of money, not as much as the money Jews who are the more liberal, the more mercantile and uh, the ones where you see like, oh, it's like there are people in Israel and they're going clubbing, you know, uh, that's it's all uh, kind of reform, liberal kind of money Jews who. Uh, uh, yeah. And the, and the important thing to know about Judaism is the two really don't like each other. It's a, <laughs> uh, a constant kind of animosity. 
between the two. But um, anyway, yeah. So I mean, you know, I had the bar mitzvah thing. I went to uh, to shul. I went to sub, uh, Sunday school. I hated it every step of the way. Like I mean, the class had uh, room for thirty people. I think thirty desks uh, in this uh, little synagogue. And, but there were only five of us in, I guess, my particular class. So, I mean, everyone else you know, sat at the front and I sat way at the back, basically arms folded for the entire, I think, three hours between nine to 12 <laughs> uh, every Sunday, hoping that at some point in time, someone would say he just doesn't like it here. He just doesn't believe and he doesn't want to. So maybe we could just let him play video games. <laughs> and, it, and that never happened. <laughs> I uh, did my bar mitzvah and at that point once you do that then it's like okay no need for Sunday school you're now a man and I was like finally video games <laughs> and, and uh, that's that's my entire life story uh, with regard you know, to faith I guess <laughs> there's an interesting parallel there that um, I think I might have talked a little bit about on the show before but there's this um, phenomenon in the Catholic Church that people refer to as like Christmas and East Christmas and Easter Catholics where um, they are Catholic in name and they have this sort of like vague, loose kind of moral code that they kind of think is informed by Catholic rules and things like that. But really the only time they ever go to church is Christmas and Easter. And, um, and uh, it's kind of like this, uh, the, the money Jew thing that you described where it's like, yes, we practice, but not really, we don't really practice, but we're, you know, we're part of the faith, but we're not really yeah, part of the no, faith. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think, I think every religion has its, I mean, especially, I mean, I, I can't speak to like the middle ages, but uh, now it's like, yeah, with the kind of, we do live in a, a liberal, some might say neoliberal culture. Uh, and, and people, yeah, they, they like their freedom and religion becomes kind of like, it's a, it's a bit of a, a loose label. It's a loose distinction, kind of just more like a little tradition as opposed to anything they invest anything in really. And, uh, um, that actually, that, that, that comes up too. I don't know if it was in this chapter, uh, with regard to apostasy, but it does come up in Isaiah where God talks about how, um, basically he's, he's mad, uh, that everyone in Judah and Israel is, they're doing all the sacrifices and they're obeying the laws of the covenant, but their uh, faith and their spirit is just not involved. I mean, they go and they uh, sacrifice the bulls and the sheep aplenty, but do they give alms to the poor? Do they clothe the uh, the naked and, and you know, uh, wash the feet of the lepers or, or, or whatever it is that he particularly commands in that section? Uh, and the answer is no, and, and he's, he's mad about that. So, I mean, I think, you know... There's some parallels, right? It's kind of like taking a class pass fail in in college. It's like I'm mm. I'm going to do the the work that is required of me, but I'm not going to be exemplary. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Under no circumstances am I going to be a model student. Yeah. No. Exactly. There are some um, some other parallels between. I feel like um, traditional Orthodox Christianity, like Catholicism, and Orthodox Judaism that I think is going to be perfect to discuss in this section of Hebrews 9 that we're going to talk about. Um, but I wanted to give a little bit of background on the book uh, or this chapter um, that is a another letter. I've done a lot of letters lately. This one's actually not from Paul. For a long time, people attributed this letter to Paul. And, um, and because of the style of it and how verbose it is, it, it's not totally out of the realm of um, belief that it could have been him or someone who was taught directly by him. But some people think that it's just as likely that it was actually Luke who um, wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote Acts, which is those two together actually make up 
uh, I saw the number somewhere. It's like more than 27% of the text of the, the New Testament actually is built of those two books. So Luke wow. was actually a huge contributor to the New Testament. If it was indeed him, it's kind of consistent with his ministry um, or like his perspective on the world. Uh, Paul was largely a missionary to Gentiles, although he was like very, very um, traditionally Jewish before his conversion. His main missions out there, like in the world where he was trying to spread the message of Christ, were to Gentile regions, not to Jewish regions, largely. So it would make sense that this letter to Jewish believers, now again, this is um, people who believe in the message and the, the, the gospel of Christ, but are still identifying as, as Jews. So um, the, the voice has just a, a quick uh, little description here in the beginning that I wanted to read before we jump into the ESV. It says, this letter is addressed to Christian believers of Jewish descent in the last half of the first century AD. Possibly the original audience lived in Rome since it was written by an unknown leader residing in Italy. For years, it was thought that Paul wrote it, but the letter lacks his typical letter-writing features. Still, the themes of the letter, its style, and the reference to Timothy suggest that Hebrews comes from somewhere within, uh, within Paul's circle of friends and co-workers. Because of its tone and structure, some have wondered whether this magnificent epistle may have originally been a sermon that was written down and later circulated as a letter. As Origen said, only God knows who wrote it which I think is so funny. We live in this age where everyone wants to verify everything. Mm -hmm. um, we have Snopes um, trying oh. to verify things. Well, I mean, we have yeah. PolitiFact. We have people who are always trying to fact check everybody and Twitter muting people because a tweet says that COVID-19 is caused by 5G or whatever. And uh, with all of this fact checking that we do, we can't figure out of the, the most popular book that's ever been written uh, and, and assembled and, 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 uh, published we can't figure out who wrote a large portion of these <laughs> yeah no absolutely i mean it's and that's i think there's something beautiful about that as well because yeah i mean people uh are, are constantly striving for this this con like this uh certainty or proof as it you know regards to like the the bible and kind of uh there are little trivia. It's like, oh, actually, we think that this book was written in like, you know, 200 AD as opposed to like 150, as we previously assumed or something. When, <laughs> yeah, really, like there is an element of beauty in just saying, maybe it came from this guy. Maybe no one wrote it. It doesn't, does it really matter uh, so long as you're able to, I don't know, find, find truth in the words themselves. But that's a very good point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but that, that said, it's also, it's, it's kind of, I think it's an, an intellectual exercise. It's like playing where you're like, oh, but like, what if, what if Paul didn't write this? That's the established kind of uh, thing, you know, and I'm kind of bored. What if it was actually, you know, someone else who wrote it? The, the field of like historical biblical scholarship is kind of like rife with like um, people that are trying to like disprove uh, preconceived notions, which can be very illuminating for those of us that are like intrigued by certain things, or why would someone have written that? Or um, how come this part relates to this other section? Or um, how did, you know, the instances of Mary, which I've, uh, Mary Magdalene, which I've discussed on the show before, where there's all of these Marys in the Bible. And for so long, people all assumed that it was all Mary Magdalene or Mary, the mother of Jesus. And 
a lot of them are just other Marys, random other Marys. In many <laughs> cases, there's just a lot of Marys out there. Yeah, I, I actually, um, until a couple seconds ago, I, I, I was under the impression that Mary Magdalene and Virgin Mary were the same person. Oh no! Yeah, uh, not at all. What, what, what is the? Uh, oh, I mean, I guess, I guess when I get to the New Testament, I'll. That's why I'm reading the book. So yeah, to be fair, you're not there yet. Uh, what What's yeah. the last book that you? What's the last episode that you did? Just Just finished Isaiah. Recorded that one yesterday. Should be up. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, sometime next week. Let's say Wednesday, Thursday, something like that. Isaiah is a good one. It's It's incredible. I mean, it's It's a doozy of a book. It's like sixty something chapters, but. My God, it's a wild ride. Really powerful stuff in there. Like there are a whole like usually I try and keep like short notes on certain sections, but there were some uh, chapters where I'm just like, you got to read the whole thing. I think it's like <laughs> chapter uh, 24 or 28, one of the two, which is so powerful. I'm like, just read the whole thing. Just uh, you know, so it's a minute of me just straight reading from the Bible. But it's that good. I think it's that compelling, and not necessary to understanding the kind of. Uh, capturing kind of the essence of, of what that, that particular uh, book is describing. I think I make a lot of different translations and different messages that are portrayed in different translations on this show, but it's almost like the really important parts of the Bible um, are powerful no matter which translation you're reading from. Um, like that's the coolest thing about this book is that like, it is such a universal like force of wisdom for so many people. And it's not because people haven't tried to distort it and, and make it their own and, and, and change the message in one way or another. But, um, but that like this, this thing has stood the test of time. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's the ideas. And this is kind of where, uh, when people get into like, there's all these, uh, translation wars that occur. Like, I mean, I think it's in like the first one, uh, like uh, Bart and uh, oh god, I can't remember who else was on that pod. But anyways, they were uh, talking about like their various uh, pet favorites for translations. Like one is like, oh, it has to be the King James because of the beauty of the language. And it's like, no, actually, the Gideon is like the most straightforward. And it's like, no, it's actually, you know, and like looking online, people were like, no, it's like the uh, NRSV because that most closely aligns with the Hebrew and Greek. And it's like, no, it's the, the Latin Vulgate actually closely uh, the the you know tradition involved in it means that it's it's got the lin effect behind it and uh every single one of them seems like none of them exactly hits the mark it's more like a great averaging out you know where one uh like every new translation of a particular passage adds more depth and more meaning to uh a truth that we would never be able to put exactly in words but you may be able to work around it's like um like a color right like assuming like you're describing or like a number you're like oh like what's uh the number two you know, how do you describe it to someone where well, you'd say, OK, well, here's like two rocks and you'd show them two rocks and you'd say, here's two uh, pennies and you show them the pennies. And then like, here's two like clouds. And over time, they would get an idea. It's like, oh, OK, two is just the things that fit into this like pattern. And you have a general understanding, of this platonic ideal of a thing that doesn't really exist, but definitely is it's real, you know? Yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it. <clears throat> that's really beautiful, like describing a number or a or a color, like an indescribable thing yeah. that it, mean, it will color, never be yeah. perfect. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, color's not exact. Cause I mean, I think that the way we've, I don't want to say we've sussed it out with regards to like the, Oh, it's just a light frequency that's moving at a, uh, you know, cause it's like the physical element. But what I'm talking about is like the pure, like it's just purely abstract. Like when you, numbers, uh, and math in that sense is really, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think it fits incredibly well, actually <laughs> a bit surprised they came up with it off the top. I've always found the King James translation to be 
kind of stuffy and difficult to read. And I don't know if it's because um, during my college years, I had to read so much Shakespeare and um, I just got and like middle English and things like that. And I just got really, really tired of the dots and the, and the thou's and oh, things. Oh like. yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think I tried to read uh, like occasionally. So what would happen is, cause I have a revised standard version or the new revised, whatever, um, because of university, I had to do it for a course. Uh, and so I was like, oh, let me find it online. But apparently it's like heavily like copyrighted. Like they don't like to share it around because it's like an academic thing and you're rent seeking involved. So I'm like, oh, I'll just look up the King James. And I would look up the passage and be like, I can't read this. I can't understand this passage that I just read in the physical book. But now I'm looking at it online and it's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> what, what am I? What? Anyway, this is why I understand how people can, can look at it and just you kind of eyes roll back into their heads and then collapse <laughs> and start seizing. And foaming a little bit. Uh, speaking of confusion, um, there are a few, I feel like, terms in this um, in this chapter nine of Hebrews that we need to kind of like suss out real quick before we dive in, because I don't want to be stopping every line to explain certain things. Okay. Um, there is a frequent reference to the word covenant, and the covenant in its original form, was the agreement essentially um, and the rules handed down to Moses, um, to the people of Israel, uh, who um, were at the time sort of like this roving uh, band of, of people that um, in exchange for uh, your sacrifices and your worship, I will provide for you and love you and protect you. That's what God's side of it was. And the people said, we will make sacrifices to you and we will worship you and we will follow your rules. That's a covenant is like an agreement. It's like a pact. There is a reference to an ark in, uh, or the ark of the covenant, which I'm sure some of us have seen the Indiana Jones movie that addresses this particular uh, bit of historical, um, uh, historical um, artifact. And, And this ark of the covenant was a specific box. It was a golden box with um, long handles that was carried some, some, uh, some, like some distance away from the people as they were traveling, usually ahead of the pack. It contained, I believe it was the, um, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, uh, a bowl of manna, yep. and um, was it Abraham's staff? Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know how they would have gotten Abraham's staff, but I do know there was a third thing in there. It might have been Moses' staff, but I could be wrong on that. Yeah. It was basically something that God directly, I mean, there were things that God directly touched. Exactly. Yeah. So this this was like a sacred place where we could keep these artifacts of, uh, of God's covenant with us. And um, so there is an elaborate kind of um, worship structure within the Jewish tradition at this time. And, um, and of course, Jesus coming and his ministry and his death and resurrection and, and the way that his ministry grew in this time was starting to challenge the old ways of religious practice. And uh, this particular chapter deals directly with that. Now, with that addressed, we're going to hit a couple of other things that we'll probably have to pause on. But yeah. with that I mean, addressed, right off, right off the bat, let's uh, can we talk about Melchizedek? Oh, Melchizedek. 
Melchizedek. Yeah. Wow. Okay. He was a he was a um, he was a high priest, um, the highest of the highest order of priests, essentially. And it was said that the the in the Old Testament it was said that the Messiah or the Savior would come in the order of Melchizedek. And uh, and in this chapter, I believe actually they say. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the new high priest. So where before you were looking to this, this one person or these, you know, this sort of small group of very enlightened people or maybe prophets, that's all done now. There's only one guy that we need to look to for all of that. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting how this takes kind of a, like this letter takes a, a form of, like I didn't just read nine, I read, uh, I mean, the first, like up until like 10 or 11 or something. Don't need the whole thing, but uh, how it takes the form of kind of a, a very logical, kind of almost legal argument, where it's like, okay, well, uh, as you remember from Genesis, you have Melchizedek who acts as an intercessionary high priest, uh, quote unquote, for eternity uh, with God, and you know, within the like the the covenant that um, Abraham also made with the like circumcision that was like where it all started. Um, so this is like, you know, dates back to Genesis, like the notion is like, oh, you already have the concept of someone relaying your, uh, uh, I guess, requests or sins or whatever back to God. So then Jesus takes the form of that as well. This thing that you're already, that you already believe in as being Jews. And now, uh, why then, you know, would this be an exception to that? Why would it be, uh, impossible for, uh, Jesus to act as an intercessionary and, uh, kind of medium between man and, and God. Yeah. And, and the, um, we talked a little bit about, uh, earlier about apostasy and, um, people who were kind of, um, lukewarm in their practicing of, of faith or kind of seemed maybe lost a little bit in the process. And there is actually a really cool, um, little passage in chapter five, verse 11, um, where it says about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So they're not saying that you're not true believers. They're not saying that, uh, you know, these, this group of this particular church is, um, is absolutely off track, but they have basically like regressed to this baby like state in their faith where they can only be fed like, like breast milk of, of knowledge because they're not ready to eat solid food again. Yeah. They can only, they can only have the milkies. <laughs> that's what they, that's the only thing that will sustain them. I'm actually, so I actually, uh, so you mentioned that this particular chapter was aimed at, uh, I guess, Hebrews who had already converted to the word of Christ. Yes. Okay. Uh, I was just, yeah, cause I was reading it. I didn't, um, I didn't catch on to that. So I was like, oh, he's just, he's preaching to, uh, Jews who have yet to believe in it, but this is like, he's explained to them how it's a, just a simply a natural extension of, uh, Judaism. This is like the next, the new covenant, which, uh, as you all know from uh, reading the uh, the Torah and the, uh, I guess, Havshora, uh, is stuff that you already believe. And this is just like the the next logical step. Your children, uh, and you need to take the next. Uh, you know, this is the the path forward, right? As opposed to don't, uh, you know, remain in uh, childhood 
or kind of uh, baby mode. Uh, it's time to become adults and, and believe in God. And believe in Christ. <laughs> That's such an interesting challenge to to the old way of things because I think that at this point it had been so long since the old faith had been established and people had become quite comfortable in the way that they believed and I think a lot of them in theory thought this Jesus guy is groovy. Like, uh, he seems pretty cool. And like, uh, you know, what he has to say is really nice. And I really like this idea of um, being forgiven for my sins um, by his sacrifice so that I don't have to kill any more of my goats. Um, gonna wait until the dog stops barking, sorry. <laughs> uh, there, were, there were a couple of cases in the Old Testament where it was humans, but, um, or, or they, you know, God said that it would have to be. And then of course it didn't wind up being in the case of, uh, well, I mean, that's uh, pre like in the Abrahamic kind of times, like, yeah, human sacrifice was, I don't want to say a bit more, like it it happens a bit more. And then after that, it's, um, like that, but I mean, he does actually require like with, with human sacrifice, he, uh, uh, kind of wants, especially when they're taking, uh, Canaan or like what would become Israel, uh, you know, God is like, I thirst for the blood of the, uh, the Canaanites, right? Uh, I killed them all and spill their blood in the soil so that I may drink it and stuff like that. That so. is, um, that's actually a passage. I'm going to do an episode about that. Um, I don't know that I am resolved enough in my faith to address that topic without straying into some kind of heresy. Um, because I am, not exactly vindicated in my faith when I read a story like that, where God is saying, you have to kill a bunch of people, uh, men, women, and children, everybody. You got to kill them all. Yeah. Um, what an odd, <laughs> what an odd command. It, it, it does like, yeah, this is the, the promise is you will get to do ethnic cleansing and I'm going to help every step of the way. So doesn't sound uh, like the God from the New Testament, does it? No, 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 it doesn't. But I mean, people have come up with all sorts of like ways of getting around it where they're like, oh, that's actually like Yahweh, who is a different kind of, he's like a different God, you know, who was like, I was reading, I was reading about this a while back about how to, how like Christians have historically squared away the uh, very real uh, and accepted uh, Hebrew God with the, you know, uh, kind of more mature adult uh um, New Testament God, who who no longer craves the uh, the milk of blood, but eats the solid food of uh, uh, forgiveness and peace. That's a really beautiful way to put it. I mean, I don't know that I want to necessarily say like this is a different God. Uh, I want to say specifically that I think um, the relationship between humans and God changes really significantly between the Torah and the New Testament. Oh, and absolutely. There is this moment of time, and I think it actually is at some point in the Old Testament, where God begins to like open his heart a little bit more to the suffering of people and to start to want to understand that, how a human suffers versus, well, we know God suffers because of uh, you know, the betrayal of humans because they worship other gods or they they sin against God. Um, but the, the pain that human beings experience on earth is something that I don't know if God really fully grasped until he came to earth as Jesus and experienced that suffering that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's something that, I mean, when we talk about heretical opinions, one that I have occasionally flirted with is the notion that uh, in you know the Old Testament and the Bible that I've kind of been noticing is that God seems to 
uh, not be completely omnipotent because he learns a fair bit from humans, you know, as we go along. I mean, even going back to Ab- Abrahamic times when he wants to uh, completely wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham is like, well, hold on a minute there. What, you, what if there are 50 good people within the city? What if there's just one good person? Would you, you know, not for one person destroy uh, a whole whatever? Um, and th- that happens actually a bunch of times where, where people, uh, you know, uh, actually, I think it's, it's mostly yeah, it's like Abraham and Moses most of the time stay uh, God's wrathful uh, hand by reminding him of, you know, the kind of consequences of uh, or, like, or like the pain that he would inflict. You know, it's like almost like he's not aware really of uh, like the mercy that he purports that he gives, you know, or says that he that he gives out. Um, yeah, so the- I, it's it's really fast. It's almost like. Um, before the, um, the exercising of holy power like that and destruction was almost like, we just like, we just spray like a pile of ants with like insecticide or like, you know, uh, we, we kill like rats that are around in like huge numbers because we don't see them as like things that are capable of suffering. And, um, it's almost like in that way. Um, gosh, you know, this is really heretical. I'm sure <laughs> I bet I sound, I bet oh. I sound extremely, um, unholy right now, but there is just this, this, um, distance that God has from human suffering, um, that I think was probably a wedge that humans created from the fall, from the original sin, from when humans directly disobeyed God and said, no, I think I got this. I'll take it from here. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this new covenant, the new covenant um, connects God to human beings inextricably because God became human on earth. Yeah. And I, I can't help but wonder whether it's, uh, uh, now, now we're going to full, full heresy here, but so <laughs> we, as we all know, uh, so man ate the, uh, the fruit from the tree of knowledge. And one of the things about it was that you'll uh, gain um, kind of... Uh, a command of knowledge similar to, to what God has, right? Like it's, I think I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it's like, yeah, you gain access to, to kind of God like knowledge. And that was at the point where we didn't become, uh, I don't want to say peers to God, but like, you know, the, the notion that, uh, now there are actually possibly things that God could learn from us and kind of grow together. To me, that ex- idea is like incredibly exciting. It's like, you know, you have this being that, uh, theoretically is, you know, perfect in every way. Like I think in Job, they talk about like, what does your, uh, you know, uh, righteousness mean to one who is righteous beyond righteousness and who is, uh, you know, strong beyond strong and all of that. What is that? What is any of that that you offer? What do you have to offer him? And the notion that maybe there is something, uh, however small in the way that humans live, that, you know, God isn't able to, you know, quite understand even until he becomes, uh, he takes the, the form of, of Jesus, then, I don't know. To me, that's kind of like a, it's a kind of a beautiful idea and in, inform in, yeah, as far as the story goes of a relationship. Yeah, it's um, it is really beautiful. And and now that we've done our daily heresy, I think it's probably best that we just dive into the text because I, that right. is giving the perfect <laughs> amount of context for what is happening here. Um, in the eyes of Jewish elders, those who weren't following the way of Christ, I'm sure that a lot of this seemed pretty heretical at the time, didn't it? Because they were saying, oh, a new covenant. No, 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 hang on. We, we have a covenant already. Um, let's not mess with that. But let's go to um, chapter 9. Uh, in the ESV, it's labeled the earthly holy place. 
Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff, not Abraham. There we go. There we go. (laughs) And the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Uh, The mercy seat, I think, was actually the spot where the um, physical uh, blood sacrifice was laid. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So we have a picture in our minds now, right? We've got like a two-room tent. Um, And keep in mind, it's a tent because um, in the old times, it was a portable religion, essentially. They weren't building temples of stone because they were having to move on from place to place, being persecuted as they were. Yeah, they were persecuted for so long, they moved from place to place. And and so they... I was going to say, it wasn't necessarily a persecution. I mean, it was really God uh, saying to them as a result of them uh, basically having, I don't want to like, I want to say a slave mentality, but they weren't quite ready. They weren't purged of their, um, they weren't righteous enough to enter the land of Israel. They simply, they were not ready. So he has them walk uh, the desert for 40 years so that there will be uh, everyone who will enter Israel. None of them will have known a life under, under slavery. And that's why Moses uh, can't even enter is because he himself, even though he is, you know, God's appointed to the one who actually had seen God's face, I think, or at least some part of him. Isn't that uh, what we talked about in Deuteronomy too, where they finally get to where they're going yeah, and Moses has to say, no, I can't, I can't join exactly. you guys. And it just, and it just ends with him kind of going off to a hill to die alone. But it's like, then the people enter Israel and now the story can really begin uh, <laughs> or, or end or, or however. But, um, uh, yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't like people were kicking them out of land. I mean, they did get into fights and scraps. Yeah, and yeah, stuff, they faced but. some. Yeah, they faced some. Um, I, maybe persecution isn't the right word. It, it's like they faced some some strife, some tribulations yeah. out there uh, in, in the wilderness as they were wandering. Yeah, but I mean, the point is that, like, yeah, basically, there was a God took the form of a cloud and they just followed it. I think it was a, a cloud and then a, and then a ball of light, depending on whether it was night or day. And uh, yeah, they just followed wherever God led them and. My guess is he just kind of went in a big loop for about 40 years and then <laughs> and then they uh, finally got to Israel. So it wasn't necessarily a kind of like the modern conception. It's like, oh, and the Jews were kicked out of Spain and then they were kicked out of uh, Germany and they were kicked out of France and they were kicked out of the Netherlands and then, you know, that kind of thing. It's uh, It was different back then. Yeah, well, nation states were kind of a different um, – there wasn't really a, a traditional boundaries in the way. There were definitely kingdoms and things like that, but um, there were no bo- border patrols. <laughs> between countries then they were just wandering um but obviously now in the context of this letter uh they are in and it's this particular group of hebrews of of jewish believers of christ were settled in a city and it may have been rome which would have been the center of all civilization at the time uh jumping back in at verse six these preparations having thus been made the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people, 
By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So it seems like the writer of Hebrews here is saying that they created this this way of praying because it was like the best that they could do at the time. Yeah, I mean... Makes sense. It was incredibly extravagant for with their kind of living conditions at the time. So it really kind of shows their commitment, actually, that they were able to maintain that. The first thing that came to mind for me was the elaborate rules and regulations that have been constructed by the Roman Catholic Church and, and really a lot of Catholic, little C Catholic churches as well, uh, Orthodox, uh, Russian or Greek Orthodox. And um, the traditions that are in place that kind of keep people away from that direct personal contact with the Holy Presence, right? The Holy Spirit isn't in that first tent. The Holy Spirit is in, in, this, in this practice. The Holy Spirit isn't in that first tent, only in that second tent, which only the high priest can go in and only once a year can he go there. Yeah. It's a kind of intercessional thing. Like I can't remember where I was reading uh, certain churches. I don't know whether it was like pre-Vatican II or whatever, but it wasn't that everyone got uh, uh, took the the sacrament, like the the wafer and so forth. It was just only like the priest would do it, like the yeah. one one guy. Um, and still today, I think there are churches definitely where yeah, the the people in the congregation just kind of stand and watch as the single priest does it. That seems like an odd practice because the the um, the sacrifice of Christ and this creation of a new covenant, the covenant of forgiveness, and like the end of the end of needing to make blood sacrifices to God because their sacrifice was already made should have leveled the playing field in some way or another because of this sort of like universal uh, sacrifice and universal salvation, uh, but. A lot of churches that formed around the, the the second covenant didn't really level that playing field. What they did was created a new kind of power structure that created a new kind of bureaucracy around practicing and holiness. Um, and I've always found that very strange because, and this is the little bit of Protestant in me, I think, that that sees a passage like this and goes, well, that just sounds like like some super orthodox Catholic churches that I've seen, um, just as much as Orthodox Judaism. I mean, it, it's like we have the rules and we ain't changing them. Yeah. No, people uh, find a way to uh, morph what is different into something that's familiar to them, even if, you know, the, what was familiar was the problem and like that's where you're trying to change it. So I think that that's <laughs> the, the story all this time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and in verse, I mean, it gets, this particular concern gets directly addressed in the next verse. Uh, the header in the ESV again says, "Redemption through the blood of Christ." Verse eleven. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So, we don't have a tent. Christ did not enter into the tent of the practice of the old way. He entered into this new and greater and more perfect tent, that is to say, the actual holy place. He didn't enter into, in his death, he didn't go to the Ark of the Covenant. He went to heaven to atone for us and and then um, make that redemption possible, uh, not through the doors of the tent, the second door of the tent, but to God. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm explaining oh, that in kind of a confusing way. No, no, no. I mean, it's like on on Earth you have uh, the old covenant, which is uh, man constructs the tent, and then you have man interceding to God uh, by offering blood sacrifices within the holiest of holy in the you know deepest chamber of the tent. Whereas uh, now with this new covenant, it's uh, Jesus who is going directly to God instead of to the tabernacle, which is just uh, touched by God. The tent is not man-made. It is the kind of like perfect, ethereal, uh, heavenly tent. And uh, yeah, Jesus is up there. And the blood that he's uh, offering is not of a cow or, uh, or whatever. It's, it's his own, right? So mm-hmm. That's his sacrifices. He is uh, not only... Uh, inter- interceding on behalf of like us, but he's like using himself as the, and it's a deeply personal kind of uh, sacrifice and offering to God on our behalf. And the unique position of Jesus in the world as a man, but also in heaven as God creates this really interesting, like this image of him going up to heaven and like having a conversation with God about, okay, here, I made the sacrifice, I died, I went through with it, can these people be saved now? Where, you know, in traditional Christian theology, Jesus is God, so he's talking to himself, or he's reasoning with himself, or has the has the conversation already been had, and he's just there, like he kicks his, he kicks his feet up and he goes, <laughs> right on. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's yeah, a lot of buddy Christ in my brain. Uh, a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I can, I can do. I mean, it's like it, you have that image of him with the long hair and the sandals. It's hard not to imagine him doing the like finger guns and the winking face. <laughs> uh, no, no, for me, it's, it's always, it's always tricky because, um, you know, there's, there's that concept of like, oh, like the, the uh, one is a Trinity, but the Trinity is one. And I'm like, I don't get it. I just don't, again, I haven't read that far, but I, I just, uh, just don't have that tradition to to kind of understand what exactly it means to be both uh, of and to be God, you know, at the same time. Yeah, it's almost like you have to think about it in in a way that's like um, like a cell multiplying and then being able to rejoin, like um, the idea of what like when you say when you do the sign of the cross on your body, you're going top uh, the head to the heart and then across your body. So like. Uh, God, this part of the Trinity is always up or wherever heaven is above. And Jesus is this intermediary that travels between heaven and earth. And then the Holy Spirit, which is the third part of the Trinity, is like this always earthly presence that is forever connected and intersected with God, but 
remains here with us while God is there and Jesus travels between. Does Jesus go back and forth multiple times? Well, I guess he I, he does, but I mean, like in you know more than twice, does that happen, or is that? Well, it's said that he's supposed to come back again, uh, and in right. Revelation, which is like at this time they were thinking that it was going to be very soon, um, right. and obviously that's not what happened, or maybe it maybe, did. Yeah, and I was going to say hell, maybe, and we're all just here forever. <laughs> I I have toyed around with that. I remember in one of my more suicidal moments, I was thinking like. But if I do it, I'll probably just wind up back here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it couldn't be. It couldn't possibly be worse than Earth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, jumping back in at verse thirteen, uh, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Um, The accusation of dead faith, like faith that is not alive, is something that's often like lobbed at, um, like Christians who aren't, um, who aren't faithful or who sin, like sin is, sin is a form of death and you are dead in sin until you become reborn in Christ. Or, um, it's also something that Christians kind of throw at other religions where it says, you know, you worship a dead God, a gone, a God that's gone or a God that is far away. And my God is here and living and right now. Interesting. Um, not entirely fair, I don't think, and not charitable enough. I don't think, uh, even if you are a devout Christian, um, your place is not to be judging other people. That's God's work. As a reminder, <laughs> we've been over this before. <laughs> yeah. No, of course. It's uh, only he can judge. No, I'm just, I mean, I'm kind of uh, conceiving that, that notion of dead faith. Like for some reason to me, that's like a, it, it's uh, resonating, but I'm trying to put into words exactly what is, is resonating within, like in the sense that it's almost kind of, um, uh, possibly vampiric if that makes sense where it's like it bears like the the notion of like or like the the physicality of like moving uh or like the resemblance to kind of uh human actions but like is ultimately it needs to feed on like the spirit of others or something i don't, I don't know that's really uh, interesting like the un like the faith of the undead yeah, exactly. Or just like, I mean, they, like, this kind of relates to the kind of going through the motions, like you offer up like uh, a cow just just because it has nothing to do with faith. It just has to do with it's a thing that you do. And in which case that is, uh, I mean, more like a zombie, I guess, like that, that state of, um, yeah, you're just you're just kind of shambling along and offering, uh, you know, just do, put, going through the motions. And that that could, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that like, like that, that's kind of like that when you say dead faith. uh and kind of conjures that up for me. And the uh, because of the unique position of Jesus as a resurrected Messiah, someone who died and came back to life, the notion of rebirth is extremely important to Christians. And it's something that's covered over and over and over again. And it's, it is a, um, it's a part of our faith to um, not to die because in, in, in the eyes of, Christian teaching, you're already dead, and you need to be reborn in Christ. 
Hmm. Um, I had to go to the voice here because I was tripping over that particular section in verse 14, and it clarifies it a little bit, um, or it may just confuse things more. Uh, The voice says, then, how much more powerful is the blood of the anointed one who through the eternal spirit offered himself as a spotless sacrifice to God, purifying your conscience from the dead things of the world to the service of the living God. So in here, they're not saying that your old worship is dead. It's just saying that like you had been concerned with and soiled by dead things of this world and through the sacrifice, uh, your your conscience is turned then to service to the living God. But I don't know if that clarifies anything. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it makes sense more or less. Like, I think I've, I've kind of, I mean, it's funny actually how much sense it makes considering it is referring to a lot of Old Testament stuff. Like in a way, just that kind of continuity of reading it front to back, which I don't know that people do, um, uh, is is kind of like it's like oh yeah, like I remember that. I remember how they did that and they made that covenant, and that's like this is like a the Platonic kind of ethereal heavenly form of like the earthly practice of that covenant. So it all makes sense and it all tracks, and it's uh, not too different from uh, what's going on. And yeah, the concept of rebirth is like. Insofar as you can say, I don't know, that you were kind of dead before, you know, you rise again. I mean, that itself is actually kind of weird to me. Like the, the resurrection, that's new. That, uh, Unprecedented. Well, <laughs> sort of. It, I mean, it, it, the way that it's used, yeah. Like uh, the prophet uh, Elisha uh, does actually do like a resurrection or two in whatever section he's in. Samuel, I think. Something like that. But, is this like a... Like a miracle, um, saving someone who's sick who's recently died, like like Lazarus, or is this like a prophet who is being exalted through resurrection? Uh, no, this is uh, saving someone who is sick. I think uh, uh, Alicia resurrects a baby who dies, and then something else. Uh, there, there are two. There are two resurrections in the Old Testament that I've encountered so far. That's fascinating. But again, it also continues with, in the logic of this letter, it makes Mm -hmm. sense, right? Because yes, the, uh, in the old way, lots of miraculous and incredible things have happened because of the power of God acting through people on earth. Um, that has been conditional though, because you have had to continue to sacrifice, make these blood sacrifices to God. Well, you don't have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, at verse 15, It goes on, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive pause because that's kind of a complicated theological argument here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this actually confused me immensely and still does. Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant uh, through his death redeems the transgressions of those committed under the... Fr- so he is saving even those who um, transgressed in the old covenant, even those who are already dead, and 
were not perhaps um, were not perhaps redeemed or saved or forgiven, that Jesus's death now retroactively forgives and redeems them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess my 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 question is: is for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. I'm not quite sure what that means. I think. I mean, I read it as um, this. The will, uh, which is like, uh, you know, like someone's estate uh, being divided, can't be enacted until you are certain that the person who is dead is actually dead. And so Jesus, verifiably dead and then alive again. So through that, through that certain rebirth is the enacting of this will of God's, like it's in God's will to forgive us. It's almost like there's like a double entendre being done here because it's like the will of God, which is like Mm -hmm. his, his power to act. And then also like the will of like a last will and Testament. Um, But it is his will. It's God's will to forgive us and to redeem us. I'm looking at the NRSV now because it is definitely. Yeah. So complicated. I, yeah, I was going to say there's a, a note here, which is the Greek word here means both covenant and will. So, I mean, maybe uh, for where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made the covenant must be established. So maybe that, I don't know if that clarifies anything. Yeah, in, in the note, the footnote for verse 15 in the NRSV, it says Christ's death redeemed also the Old Testament saints and inaugurated the new covenant. So... Yeah, that is, it is puzzling though, because why, okay, that's true, but why does it need to be said? So we'll go back to verse 18 in the ESV. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Moses shed, Moses in, in, in the creation of the first covenant, there was a blood sacrifice, obviously, like there had been following that, continuing that. Um, but this is saying specifically that there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, which I think is a very difficult topic for me to grasp. Because why? Why does it have to be that way? Mm-hmm. They're saying it as though it's absolute fact, but there's not really an explanation for why it is that something needs to die in order for something to be made right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, it, it kind of goes back to like the, the concept, like this is kind of, it feels like extending the old, uh, extending the old comedy, the concept of like the blood sacrifice, it's like, oh, okay, now we have like on earth, the bloodless sacrifice, but the blood is like the heavenly blood of Christ. Uh, but like why the blood in the first place that really, you have to go way back to, I mean, that's just questioning the whole, it's like you're questioning God's will at that point. You know, it's, it's like saying then, then why, uh, must, I don't know. Why, why must we not adulter, I think? 
The, that makes um, sense. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I was just looking back this passage about this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you, I think is, is mirrored um, in um, the passage of the Last Supper, and I'm trying to find which book it's actually in, but Jesus said, this is the blood, my blood, where he, he's, you know, essentially holding up this wine. This is my blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Um, so again, we see where the New and Old Testament kind of align in, in their own way. Mm. Uh, uh, gosh, I guess home stretch. So let's let's go yeah. on to verse. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I don't think you usually get this much in-depth reading from your guests. <laughs> no, I love this it. Is actually, now um, we're actually puzzling out, <laughs> piecing out the Bible. I honestly, man, this it, it is fun. I will say that there's so much to. Um, I'd like to, and, and, and like selfishly, this is a really nice way to like stimulate my brain in a time where um, we just endlessly scroll social media feeds and and focus way too much on stuff that really doesn't matter. Um, doing these kinds of in-depth Bible studies is like a really good way to keep my critical thinking going because let's face it, most of us in our everyday lives, whether it's work or school or whatever, are not often asked to think super critically about things. Um, you know, we might have difficult jobs, but they don't usually involve analysis um, or, yeah. or like um, metaphor <laughs> or things yeah. like that. No, absolutely. And especially, I mean, I think with jobs, like they, they may become you know difficult at first, but after a while, a lot of it does become routine, punctuated only occasionally by bouts of like, you know, you have to problem solve here and now. But even problem solving, it's like it falls into the realm of the practical, not the realm of like, uh, yeah, like metaphor and and um like this kind of logic, the only thing I can think of that kind of follows this might be like law or something, you know? Yeah, because law is similarly like we wrote these rules and they are the rules. We don't yeah. always have a why. Yeah, exactly. But like an if then, you know, why not this? If it must be blood, then why not, you know, blood of who, who, who what qualifies as blood? Who can give it? You know, if there must be blood, then how much? Uh, in what form must it take? Uh you know, et cetera. Like these are the little questions where uh, I can't help but think that it's like, oh, maybe like, you know, uh, people do say that Jesus was a Jew. Maybe he was like, hey, wait a minute. I got, I got a little <laughs> loophole here. I got an angle. I can save everybody with this this uh, one little trick. That, uh, uh, we live in a world, too, that is so scientific and so um, so obsessed with the how that. Um, we cannot think of like reading the Bible or analyzing this or trying to get into scripture in a serious way as though we're going to be able to approach it with some kind of um, algebraic formula that's going to make it all make sense. Right? I mean, there's not really a, uh, a specific solution to the things that seem very confusing in this book. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's, um, I mean, and that's why people have been studying it for like thousands of years is that even, uh, now with like, you know, millions or however many people who are like really dedicated and have been dedicated to studying the Bible, like there are still many, many, many questions about the Bible and, you know, how it relates to us. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, that's why this, you know, book endurance is because there's still many, like it's still applicable. It's still, uh, 
like not only an unsolved like problem, but it's like in the solving of it or attempting to, you kind of, I don't know, you find some measure of lasting happiness. Yeah. So there's something incredibly comforting about that. <laughs> Uh, at verse 23, it says, thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Uh, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And I'll pause here right before we get to the end because this is a line too that tripped me up. I said, end of the ages. This was 2,000 years ago. (laughs) So, is this a reference to them thinking, and I think it is, but is this a reference to them thinking at the time that the end was near and that it was imminent that um, the world was coming to a, a, you know, a complete end? Um, or is there another way to read this? I mean, I, I kind of interpreted like the end of ages is just like whenever the end uh, you know, and no one uh, like the whatever is that quote? I don't know if I've actually come to it yet, but uh, no man can know the hour, right? It's like it's uh, you can't know when things are going to end, but you do know that they will eventually. That's that. I feel like that's you know prophesied or, or made clear at some point that uh, life on Earth or this earthly life is not eternal. Uh, so when that happens, that's when when Christ is finally free. There's, I guess, an alternate way to read it too that um, the end is the beginning, which we see this kind of paradox a lot in the Bible, um, where it's not the end of the ages of all time, but it is the end of that age and the beginning of a new age. And the beginning of that new age is established with the, it's almost like how we split time or, you know, historically it was like before Christ and and BC and AD, right? In in like the years of, of, of time. Um, that the the creation of the new covenant is the end of the old age and the beginning of a new one. Yeah. And so, okay, so here's here's an interesting question. So the way that I was kind of reading this chapter before we got to this line, like this specific section, was I was reading it as uh, in the same way that the uh, high priest would offer the blood sacrifice once a year within the covenant. I just kind of assumed it's like, oh, like once in a heavenly year, once every year, uh, Christ dies within heaven. He bloodlets himself in heaven as the blood sacrifice every single year, which I thought was kind of like, I don't know. It's, I mean, sad, right? Mortifying, but also kind of beautiful. It's like, oh, that's continual pain, eternal, right? But for our sake uh, versus here, it just seems like uh, he just dies. He dies once. He does the sacrifice once. And then that's it for everyone, which I mean, also very noble, not to diminish, but Surely dying infinity times is uh, <laughs> more, slightly more magnificent than, than just dying just once, right? Uh, sure. And, and like the concept, that's, that's actually like, I've never heard anyone uh, sort of hypothesize that before. That's really, really interesting. And the idea of dying in heaven, like, what does that mean? 
uh, if he gives himself like a blood, is it really like, is it, could it be a bloodletting or something? But yeah, I mean, the other language in this is saying it's once for all. Um, and so we don't have to kill, you know, animals anymore, or no one else needs to be offered up as a sacrifice. And I mean, obviously all the talk about martyrdom and, um, giving your life to, the ministry of Christ and, and giving your life to spreading God's word, all of that talk in the Old and New Testament kind of says that, like, yes, your sacrifice in its own way is essential to the establishment and the main, uh, the maintenance of this new covenant. So while the only death that really made this redemption and this... Um, forgiveness happened was Jesus's, like the blood of Christians spills uh, thoroughly throughout the, <laughs> the first few centuries. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, not even just the first few centuries, but even throughout, like um, you were, uh, the latest episode that you released uh, as of now was about, um, like you talk a bit about martyrdom. Yeah. I can't remember who it's with, but uh, yeah, about, like various uh, martyrs. And what immediately came to mind was actually uh uh, Saint de Brébeuf, uh, who is a kind of a Canadian figure who is notoriously like, I mean, he was a missionary within French Canada and was uh, taken by the Iroquois and basically tortured to death, but con- like nonstop throughout his torturing, he was like preaching the word of God and like comforting the uh, f- other prisoners there and reminding them of like the, the reward of heaven. Like they do a kind of like uh, reverse baptism on him where they pour boiling water on him three times and they uh, pull off his fingernails and he's preaching the word of God. So they cut off his tongue and lips and it, it's, it's actually, it's brutal. But uh, thinking about it, it's like, yeah, the, the amount of like blood and faith that is spilled there, like they cut out his heart needed because they wanted to gain his, his courage and strength uh, through uh, that, that he displayed through the, the torture that they uh, put upon him. That's awful. Yeah. Um, and just like the story that Mikey was talking about with um, someone who is singing as they're being burned alive, it, there was uh, two weeks ago, uh, I made reference to St. Robert Southall, who was like a, a poet and a Catholic priest in England, and he was killed. And uh, he was initially hung. He was to be hung and then drawn and quartered. And when he was hung, he didn't die right away. And so he hung there making the sign of the cross as he was essentially suffocating, um, which is like so awful and so brutal. And like we, I think a lot of people in a country where um, Christianity is so established in a culture, really, not just the U.S., but sort of Western culture in general, where Christianity is so established, we've we've really lost concept, any kind of concept of the amount of suffering that, uh, spiritual forebearers, uh, before us went through to maintain the gospel that brings so many people hope. And, oh, absolutely. um, it's really sad and it's awful. I mean, hearing details like that is, um, it's difficult. It's really, really hard to hear. And, 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 uh, and this is a whole different tangent, I suppose. <laughs> but, but I mean, it, it is it is kind of related because it ties into this uh, next point. So, like, you have people uh, who, I guess, uh, try and recreate the 
Jesus's sacrifice. Like, I mean, I think uh, in the Philippines, they they actually crucify themselves, like with the nails of the hands and everything. Yeah, yeah, I've seen video of that. It's pretty wild. It, it's insane. There's a guy who does it like every year. He's been doing it for like 20 years. Every wow. single year, the nails of the hands and the feet, I think, too. It's insane. It's but uh, I mean, in the argument is that by like the, the kind of uh, destruction and mortification of the flesh and that kind of like, you know, torture, it's it's actually, um, I don't know, not only bring yourself closer to Christ, but like kind of uh, is like a, a test or a demonstration of faith, like to be able to hold it within uh, that, that, that love and faith in God through times when they're like really bad and when it's painful, as opposed to being kind of, I don't know, I want to say like fair weathered, but uh I, I, I guess uh, the, the the question that I have is like, I don't know. Um, it's not really a question, really. It's just like, damn. Like, I guess, I guess they're saying that like there's 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 more merit within uh, suffering for your beliefs than having like no struggle for them at all. Like, if yeah. your beliefs are never tested, then you know. But then again, whose whose beliefs aren't tested, right? Like, even someone who lives a theoretically uh, you know idyllic life in North America, right, free of uh, persecution uh, as a Christian. Um, you know, would probably think that like being stuck in traffic, right? Like that maybe. Well, that's that's kind of a that's a flippant example. But I'm thinking like, okay, like the death the death of a close loved one. You know, no one is immune to that. Uh, and to that may that may be, you know, comparatively, relatively, also, you know, a test of one's faith or something. And there's a big difference though between like voluntarily causing yourself pain, um, and being caused pain because of your faith. Like if you do this sort of thing, like voluntarily um, crucifying yourself every year in the name of Christ so that you can understand what he went through, that's, I mean, in a way, I think it's kind of a beautiful practice. I think it's probably horrible. Uh, It probably feels horrible. And um, I can't imagine wanting to do that. But if you do, um, don't mistake that for the sort of pain of persecution and, and, you know, uh, being killed because of your faith. That's, that's a much different example yeah. of, uh, of suffering. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with that completely. Um, verse 27. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, not funny at all, actually. Nothing in this book yeah, is no, funny. No, not at all. Um, no, it's very it's serious. Very, very serious. But wow, that got really heavy there for a second, didn't it? It. it well, we needed to break some tension here. <laughs> and, hey, we're almost done. Yes. Well, let's finish this one off. <laughs> I, I feel like we get mired in in uh, uh, we get mired in like the pain and suffering of it all. But ultimately, like the message of the Bible, the message of Jesus or God, um, is one of joy is one of like is salvation and like good things. So it would behoove us not to just focus necessarily on all of the awful pain and suffering that we go through in our lives. And that occasionally it's important to go, uh, things, things are, you know, I, I feel relatively comfortable. I get to talk to my friends about the Bible. You know, I get to, um, I get to laugh with them and I get to have good times with people. And isn't that a blessing in its own way? Uh, suffering, for your faith is a blessing, sure, and, and that's mentioned several times, but also like rejoicing and being happy is its own way um, yeah. of honoring no, that's, God. 
Yeah. Well, I was going to say that's uh, Ecclesiastes, I think, is the the joy in man. That's what's given to you by God is this life to to kind of enjoy. You really, you don't have a whole lot else. Like nothing is really, uh, I mean, in, in Ecclesiastes, it's like nothing is eternal except for like, you know, the uh, the wisdom with it through God, right? And what has God given you? But life gives you life to, to enjoy, to live. Mm-hmm. So given that, it's, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, watch your language and don't sin and all that stuff. But like, you can have fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's why you're here. It's why you're here. (laughs) You're it's it's uh, it's holy to laugh. Laughter is a type of prayer. Oh, I like that. That's nice. Okay, uh, so verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the second coming of Christ is not going to be him dying on a cross again. It's going to be him welcoming the people who have accepted his message and have lived according to his teachings into the realm of God and into heaven. And and Or, and some, some people posit that this re-entering of Jesus to earth is actually to create heaven on earth and to turn for, for God's, uh, Jesus's return to earth is to create heaven here rather than to um, rapture everybody up into the sky. Okay. I was going to say, cause Jesus dies like three times, right? Like first time it's, he's locked in a cave and the second time is crucifixion, but he comes back after the crucifixion, right? Well, he, he, he is, his death in a, he, he died on the cross and he was, he resurrected out of the cave. So he only died, he only really died once on, on earth, but he enters into the realm of heaven and hell. Well, in, in some belief, his, after his death, he actually descends to hell, battles Satan, and then comes back to earth and goes, dudes, I won. (laughs) <laughs> and um, guess what? <laughs> yeah. No. Um, Complicated uh, yeah, bit of theology, that one, though, because the, the the actual existence of Satan, the devil, Lucifer, is um, disputable depending on how you read the Bible. And, and the existence of hell as this like a pit of eternal torment and fire is actually disputable, too, because a lot of the references to hell or damnation references to like the underworld which was like this vaguely pagan concept of where dead souls go uh, if they're sort not of, saved yeah. i mean that's true but it's also uh in the old testament you have uh sheol or sheol and the pit which are kind of ref- they're interchangeable more or less uh as the the catch-all place for the place where the dead go and also where the bad people that either god or uh the israelites are going to kill yeah, so like Sheol like cast- is, is Hades, basically, right? That's just like the yeah. underworld or or the after place. Yeah, but I mean that said, it, you know, appears in the uh, old Old Testament, not the Torah, but it does appear in like the um, oh god, is it like the Nevi'im or whatever the the prophetic books kind of surrounding that around the time. I mean, I think it even appears in like uh, David and Solomon as well. So it's definitely not. It's uh, just a, a full-on pagan thing. It's uh, It has, you know, Abrahamic origins as well. But maybe they got it from the Greeks. Who knows? The Greeks have been around a long time. And 
yeah, the, the structure of hell, I guess, is what I really meant. Like this idea yeah. of like the circles of hell and like the oh, fire, yeah. the fiery pits and things like that is something yeah. that I, I largely gather is pretty much just like Dante yeah. who created this idea of, uh, of hell being like that. And I don't know. I mean, I guess I should be more forthcoming with my, my personal beliefs because I've, I've danced around a lot of stuff at the effort of kind of like I want to have a diverse group of people on the show. I really want to have people who come from all walks of faith and or or no walks of faith. And I, it's not my purpose on this show to like alienate anybody or make them feel like they need to believe what I believe or whatever. But this notion of hell, I think, in eternity is simply not heaven, at least to me. That seems to me, and I, I don't know if that's actually more of like a, I've heard some some Jews say, I don't believe in hell. I That is what hell is, is being eternally separated from God. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like, that's a, as reasonable an interpretation as anything else. I mean, that's, you know, as supported as like the nine circles of hell is, right? <laughs> so... To that end, I mean, yeah, I guess I, my, my question I was going to ask is like, do you believe in hell? Which you wound up wound up answering uh, preemptively. Um, yeah, the answer is kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, that's actually it's uh, actually a really good answer. Yeah, I mean, and also with the like, do Jews believe in hell or heaven or whatever? It's. I've always been told uh, no, <laughs> or like they don't believe in hell and like heaven is like, that's real, I guess. But again, reading the Old Testament, it's it's like getting different uh, answers from the text than I have been from people who explained it to me when I was younger. So, so I don't know. That's, <laughs> that's so I'm interesting. Just, I'm just going by this particular in translation of the, I mean, maybe it's possible that I've missed some sections or like misinterpreted some, or I'm missing context. Like I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not claiming to be an expert here. I'm just a regular guy just reading the Bible for the first time. But from everything that I've kind of seen so far, it seems to be that, uh, you know, there, there are some discrepancies between what I've been told or what I was taught and what's actually in there. The good thing about the Bible is, is if you feel like you missed something, you can always go back and read it again. <laughs> oh yeah, no, you're you're encouraged. I all sorts of different ways to read uh, read this book. I mean, I actually, I think it's, uh, uh, I think you you uh, we talked about this when you came on was how you were amazed that I was doing uh, a book an episode, which to me made sense. But you know, seeing how much uh, discussion we have uh, wrung out of a single chapter of a book. <laughs> I mean, granted there are some parts like the history sections where I just don't think that would have been possible. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked, but uh, I don't know. There, there is a lot and you don't need to read in terms of actual raw word count very much, even just a couple sentences and you can just dive right in and keep diving. I mean, you can be swallowed up by, by the word. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. You come out the other side and you've wasted th or spent, uh, wisely three hours. Right? <laughs> well, I think we did an awful lot of, of analytical, uh, uh, interpretation and, and you brought a really awesome perspective to the show. So I, I really appreciate you coming to join me. 
Hey, happy to be on. This was actually a, a fascinating little preview of, uh, like, I mean, I, I've seen a little bit of the New Testament because I was flipping around in there and it's like, oh my God, it's also short, but also dense. I am really <laughs> looking forward to, to getting to this thing. Um, so I don't know. It's uh, thank you for giving me an excuse to just skip ahead a little bit to peel, <laughs> peel back the curtain and take a peek at what's to come. I remember Did when we? I was talking to you about coming on the show, I was like, well, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it for you. <laughs> yeah, no. In hindsight, that was probably kind of stupid. It's like this no, is the I most mean, red book in all of history. <laughs> I mean, even then, there are a lot of things that I just do not know. But it's also like, yeah, now that I know that there are many different types of Marys, that doesn't diminish the experience. I'm always of the belief that uh, – there are very few mediums that spoilers actually matter for. And if they like the enjoyment of a show or movie or whatever relies on you not knowing exactly what's coming next, it you, you can't read it again. It's not a very good medium or show, you know? Yeah. Like generally speaking, it's like if you know that like, oh, like, I don't know, that this, this guy's actually he's he's secretly, I don't know, I mean, he's dead. Bruce Willis is dead. Then uh, it's a spoiler. Um, <laughs> the, the, you know, the, like I knew that watching the movie and I'm like, OK, but I see how this scene, it's like technically they're not in the same shot together. And oh, she's like not looking. At, and she, when she says, OK, she's saying it to the weight. Oh, I see how this is done, you know, and mm-hmm. you like it builds the kind of appreciation for it as an art rather than being just kind of. uh I know, it's kind of like how babies like to rewatch the same show over and over again uh, because they know what's coming and they get enjoyment out of like pattern recognition. So uh, for me, like an enjoyment of a show, it's like, oh, I kind of knowing what's coming. It's like, ah, the, there he is the ghost, you know, <laughs> it's like, like I'm a baby. I'm a baby in the brain. But I think a lot of people are, too. So, yeah. And, uh, spoilers, and you're fed yeah. spiritual milk instead of solid food. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Keep drinking your milk and uh, spoil yourself all you want. Spoil <laughs> yourself, kids. I was just thinking about a guy reading the Bible for the first time, and he gets to um, the point in Matthew where Jesus is crucified, and he stops and goes, wait a second, he dies? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a new oh, type of guy for everybody, just in case yeah. you're looking for a new type of guy. Yeah. Or... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, do you want to uh, give anybody uh, some plugs? You want to send out uh, send out your social medias or your? Uh, why don't you plug your podcast at least for everybody? Yeah. Uh, so this is um, uh, House Cat. I go by at Sexist House Cat on Twitter, uh, and the podcast that I do is called Bible Buddies. Uh, the Twitter at is I believe it's at Bible Buddies Pod. All one word. I can be found on pretty much any uh, uh, Spotify, whatever podcasting app. I think if you just look me up, just anchor the um, website, uh, basically and upload an episode there and it spits it out to like 20 different sites. So if you just Google it, you should be able to find it, all that information there. As far as other plugs I have, um, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible is a fantastic podcast. I recommend you all check it out. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and everyone go listen to Bible Buddies. It's um, it's an interesting concept to uh, hear somebody go through in, um, in such large scale, uh, the Bible it, book by book for the first time. And, uh, and House Cat, you are a, a brilliant mind. So thank you for oh, what wow. you do. Thank you. <laughs> I'm blushing. <laughs> Uh, the poem that I selected for today's episode is by Louise Gluck. 
the poem is called the Vita Nova. You saved me, you should remember me. The spring of the year, young men buying tickets for the ferry boats. Laughter because the air is full of apple blossoms. When I woke up, I realized I was capable of the same feeling. I remember sounds like that from my childhood. Laughter for no cause, simply because the world is beautiful. Something like that. Lugano. Tables under the apple trees. Deck hands raising and lowering the colored flags. And by the lake's edge, a young man throws his hat into the water. Perhaps his sweetheart has accepted him. Crucial sounds or gestures like a track laid down before the larger themes, and then unused, buried. Islands in the distance, my mother holding me out a plate of little cakes. As far as I remember, changed in no detail, the moment vivid, intact, having never been exposed to light, so that I woke elated at my age, hungry for life, utterly confident by the tables, patches of new grass, the pale green pieced into the dark existing ground. Surely, spring has been returned to me, this time not as a lover, but a messenger of death. Yet it is still spring. It is still meant tenderly. Thanks, everybody. I know you'd like to line dance Everything so democratic and cool Steve, it's because people even no highway will bring them back. So if you don't want me, I promise not to linger. But before I go, I've gotta ask you, dear, about that tan line on your ring finger. <laughs> <laughs> 